Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. My name is Rebecca Davis. I'm a journalist for The Daily Maverick, and it's my great pleasure to be here today with the author of Buddy Speaks So Well, Mr. Ivan Johnson, who is a multi-award winning ad man, and as of the publication of this book, also perhaps in the future, an award-winning author. Now, considering Ivan does not actually write nonfiction for a living, I have to tell you, I was horrified by this book because he puts those of us who do actually write nonfiction for a living to absolute shame. It concludes on the note that he wishes perhaps someday somebody will say, but he writes so well. Well, he does, let me tell you. And if there's one thing I've learned about Ivan from reading this book, it is really that he is somebody who knows how to find lightness in the midst of dark. And I think in a week like we've had this week, we could really all use a little bit of a little bit of light. It's been one of those turbulent and dark weeks that really makes you wonder what it, what it means to be South African. And that coincidentally really is the subject of Ivan's whole book. He's somebody who has weathered some of the darkest days of our pre-democratic history and somehow managed to take out of it something so light and fresh and novel and funny. It is a really funny book. I think that we could all do with a little bit of humor in our lives at the moment. And that's what Ivan hopefully is going to bring to us. But Ivan, first, let me welcome you. Thank you for being with us tonight. Good evening, Rebecca. And good evening to everyone else who's actually made it and been watching. Thank you. Let me start off with a fairly obvious question. I was thinking about this and I think every other book written by an ad man in South Africa that I can think of has been about how to run an advertising agency. You are taking a radical departure here. So tell us a bit about how the book actually came about. What made you start to write this, what is subtitled as a memoir of a South African identity crisis? Okay, well, it does go back to Adnan because that's where it all happened. And no, I wasn't going to write a bit about ads or running ad advertising agencies. I don't think I really know how to do it properly, although I do. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's not a thing. There are enough books out there and lots of amazing people have written books about it. But I had no intention of writing anything like I had no intention of starting advertising. Um, but it happened on a set one day. Well, it happened, yeah, on a set. We were doing this quite a big shoot for shooting a commercial. And, um, you know, months had gone along where we negotiated with a big star from the United States. I'm going to have to kind of drop names here. My apologies. But Jamie, Please do. We're trying to get Jamie Foxx to do an ad with us. And, you know, like I said, it was late night calls to Jamie Foxx, to him and his lawyers and everything. And it was for a big brandy brand, a South African brand. And it was aimed at the, the new emerging market, the black market and the more youthful market, because the current market, which was all white men with pot bellies, were dying. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> and Jamie a few times asked, like, you know, are we doing the right thing? Is this script really right for the black market in South Africa? And we keep saying, you know, yes, it, 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 it is. And he said, mm. and in fact, at one time I did say something, which I'll kind of talk about later. But anyway, he did agree to come over and he came over with his whole entourage and agreed to the shoot. And we had to shoot and we on, on set one day in the studio and Jamie's doing his thing. They're busy shooting and Harvey's entourage walks over and was one of his lawyers, management, Lloyd Exeter, um, very dark, and he comes over, a very charming man. He comes over to me, I'm like, mm, what's this about? And he's like, Ivan, are you sure you're doing the right ad for your black market? And I'm like, no, no, we are, Lloyd. Yeah, we talked about it. Are you really? Because, like, you're a copywriter, 
he's white. I thought, yeah, I, thought, oh, I know where this is going. And he said, and your art director, he's white. And I said, before I went any further, I saw, saw where they were going. He's like, well, well, I'm black. <laughs> <laughs> and he went, you ain't black. <laughs> oh, my Lord. And the whole studio went quiet. It was awkward. You know, one thing, thinking, oh, this is it. It's all over. He bursts out laughing, you know, and I laugh nervously along with him because everything's okay again. But, you know, it was the, at that very moment, I thought, like, you know, oh, my goodness, maybe I, I don't know what I am. Maybe, what am I? Am I black? Am I colored? What am I? Maybe I've been hiding too long. Maybe I just identified as a creative, you know, because as, you know, low self-esteem, it's just, okay, if I'm becoming creative, I don't have to think about what color I am. And maybe I forgot about what it is. And maybe other people don't realize what I am. You know, because of what I give. So I decided right then that I was going to start writing and explain my story for at least my little daughter, India, to understand that. So that night I went back and started writing. And that was a process that would end up taking you several years. Yes, a very long time. I mean, you know, people say I'm driven to you know, um, be a single father and start a, a new agency. But the, the truth is I am inherently lazy. So <laughs> I took a long time, but in my defense, it was a stop start sort of thing. And I started writing a certain book. I stopped writing that book. I did a little bit more and then I did screenplays and I did all sorts of different things until I got to the point which lockdown really did give to us, which was time, you know, to really kind of focus and do something. But yeah, it, it, it's been in many guises before this book. I don't actually believe for a second from the evidence of your book and your life story that you are a lazy person, but we're going to let that go as part of your self-deprecating shtick, which I think does characterize your writing as well. And of course, a lot of the humor stems from that. Talk to us a little bit about the title. As I understand it, it wasn't always to be called Buddy Speaks So Well. No, it wasn't. I think um, the first title we had... Uh... I discussed, well, one I'd put down that was called Jenga Man because of the way I was writing it. At first, when I first started writing, um, you know, it was just a typical sort of, basically a diary, a sequential sort of, I was born here and I did this and I did this. And I could see it was just becoming a bit, just another book about um, a minority or a group of people and this is how we live sort of story. And yeah, but then it became more, um, and especially when I started doing research on my family and especially my dad's side of the family because he was an orphan and we didn't know much about it. He didn't share much about it. And as I found out things and started writing, I saw lots of things recurring in my life. Um, there were certain things I was doing all the time and maybe there were like bigger things I was doing some now and again, but making the same mistakes, or, but not really weary of it. But once you start writing, and you have now a record of things you've done and things you've been. You start seeing those things reoccur so now and again and bigger things as well. And then I start um, um, changing the title and I, and I call Jenga Man. Yeah. And um, it really kind of um, hit me really hard one day when I was doing, um, you, know, I, you know, things like when I'm talking about like, um, things recurring, like, you know, I had this little car I used to play with as a kid when you played car car. You know, and I always had this car with this big fastback window. And at the time, I had a car with a big fastback window. I wouldn't say what kind of car it is. And it was always under the big plum tree. And I had like this, you know, the sardine can as the pool. And it was this very modernist house. As very much the house I uh, was then living into, my dream house that I bought and, and lived in. So everything, you know, it was, 
all these things are coming true. Things I did as a kid are still like repeating itself, but in real life. But then the biggest thing is was when I went to my old aunt, Aunt May, to find out my dad's story, you know, which she knows a lot about, and Aunt May's wife went there. And um, just before that, we decided that my daughter's name is going to be India. Okay. And um, I had never been to India, so I have no connection with India whatsoever. Uh, my ex-wife had been to India as a, a, an heir to Emirates, uh, but she didn't particularly like the place. But you know, she came with thousands of names, and that's the only name that I really liked and she really liked. And then three days later, we're having this conversation with Aunt May, and then she tells me the whole story about my dad, that his um, real father was Indian. Mm. Okay. So that's one of those big things, like, oh, my, you know, the Jenga man's totally the right name for this book. But, you know, later things did kind of change as our relationship changed and my, my, my marriage um, changed, the relationship changed. And, you know, there was um, a sense of foreboding. Things were going to change and maybe separate, okay? And it's quite a big thing. So, you know, with the game Jenga, um, you know, when, when you play a game Jenga, with the West African game, right, you start playing the game after you build the tower. So you have to build the tower first, right? Mm have your sort of Jenga blocks, you know, now you've got to stop playing game. And that for me, the analogy was like, when you get to a stage of life, you think you're whole, this, you understand who you are, that's me. It could be at any age, it doesn't have to be new later in life, it could be when you're 30, it could be earlier, where you think you're really kind of confident in who you are, but now you've got to play who you are to the rest of the world. And the first blocks you move, those are the easiest ones, right? The easiest little blocks you move. And those are the things to me, what we do every day. You know, they, they, they're just, um, they're habit. You know, you can't help doing it, whether they're right or wrong. You don't just realize you're doing it. You do it. That's just you. That's your personality that just comes through every day. There's nothing much you can do about that. And then you get to the second level of the game of Jenga, where you've got to move the harder pieces, yeah, the tougher pieces to kind of dislodge and move. But you've got to play them to get in the game, right? You've got to, to keep the game going. You've got to move yeah. it, try it. And those are things that kind of the bigger things that happen in your life, that you must be cognizant of, that you have to listen to, like, hey, mate, this is, this is kind of like feels familiar. I need to maybe tackle this a little bit differently. You know, it's not all just like written in the book and that's how it's going to be, yeah? It's like we can still... And those are... Th but you have to play them. And then there are blocks, you know, right at the bottom, the tough ones that you probably shouldn't move and not even try to dislodge because there's a chance that the whole power comes down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the whole tower comes down. That's like, you know, and, and, and those blocks, that, that, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you did in your life and you're going to do it again. It could be what your father did or your mother did, something happened to your family. It could miss a generation or a couple. It could be a really big um, a catastrophe of some sort or, or tragedy or success, you know. Um, and, and, and it's one of those things that really unsettled me because when I found out that there's, there's a good chance we're going to be separated as a family, my, myself, my wife, and my daughter, and then I found out from my aunt that my dad, when he was six, seven years old, at primary school, there always was a lady that used to come to the fence at the lunch break, and she was beautiful, you know, and she always wore flower inside of her head, in her hair, and whichever my, my, my ex-wife always wore flower in her hair. She loved bright colors, and she always wore flower in her hair. So that was quite creepy already. But then, you know, she'd speak to um, little Joe Johnson through the fence, and then at the end of the break, I'd with a little chin eye, give him a little sweet or a treat, and leave and walk away. And when he was 17, he found out that that was actually his real mom, you know, that wow. um, 
came to visit him that time and, and all that was just too much. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I just, am I going to be looking, you know, through a loved one, my daughter or my wife, through a fence for the rest of my life, you know, and it really hit me so hard. I, I stopped writing the book because I thought mm-hmm. I must stop writing it and stop, you know, seeing these things, maybe I can prevent it from happening in real life. And which, of course, you know, you, you can't, you know, it's like there's different people involved and things, it's, it's beyond fate, but there's something, I felt there's something real. So I don't, you know, I always felt before that I was alone and everything I did was up to me and whether it be success or failure, it was my mm. fault yeah, or my drive. But I realized there's more to life than just being alone and just plodding along, you know. It's not quite fate, but I think it's very hard to understand. Um, so yeah, so it was called Jingaman, but then I stopped writing as well because the, it became too philosophical. It became too deep and I felt uncomfortable with writing, so the writing became very labored, you know. So mm. I stopped writing. I stopped writing completely for that reason and for the, because of the labored writing. And, um, you know, one chapter was actually already published then. Um, um, the person who evaluated my, my my manuscript then was Diane Overbach, and she really liked the writing and, con- and encouraged me to keep going. And um, she actually asked if she could use one of the chapters called 1976 in the metric second language, metric workbook or something. So I don't know if it's still being used, but it was included there, yeah. Your writing would be such a welcome treat for uh, high school students coming across it because it is as, as you, you've said you said you, you were getting too philosophical and perhaps you veered towards the other towards not the other extreme but you you obviously made a conscious decision to insert a lot more humor and lightness into it and that is really one of the um, hallmarks of your your of how you write about your upbringing you write for instance that the gossip and questions in the, in the churchyards and schools of the Cape Flats were not of who shot Hector Peterson, but who shot J.R. You know, there's a sense that as um, overwhelming as the political forces were at the time, for you as a child and perhaps for your um, family at that time, your community, the most dominant influences were actually kind of pop cultural. Yeah, they were because, you know, there were lots of things going on in our lives, you know, you know, because I grew up during apartheid, it doesn't mean that our lives are so different. Okay, look, we were also protected in a way because we didn't know what we were missing. So we never thought we were missing anything, you know, besides a bigger car or a bigger house or living close to the seaside. Yeah, but we, we, were, we had really full lives and lived them all, you know. So it wasn't just, you know, we had um, a certain exposure, a certain amount of exposure to pop culture, but, you know, we, we created a whole... We created our own pop culture within the places we lived, within the communities. You know, there, there was more than enough drama going on with the neighbours next door than ever there was in Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> so you're growing up in Belgravia Estate, um, which is obviously on the Cape Flats. And the way you paint it is as a, a, a childhood which, though taking place in the heart of apartheid, as you said, is actually one that you remember with a... a, a a strong degree of fondness. It's certainly not a time that you characterize as being all doom and gloom. No, not all. Like I say, I mean, like we weren't wanting for anything. You know, we had big full lives. I was very lucky to have a family. You know, a, a, 
a nucleus family, a mom and a dad, two beautiful sisters, older sisters. And, you know, we had food on the table every night. Yeah, uh, My dad had a car, well, eventually. You know, we had our own, own home. So, no, there was nothing really to complain about. I mean, everyone, it doesn't matter what they have, will always want more. But we never felt we really lacked anything, you know. My mom would always say, like, we need so much. We, our important was to have money. And she, you know, filled in the St. John's jackpot every week, hoping to win the 10,000 rand that would change our lives. But essentially, we were happy. You know? And, you know, we a community. And within our community, we had our own issues. Like I said, we had drama. You know, we had, we had little mini prejudices amongst our own community with the next-door neighbours. You know? So although the rest of the country, the biggest story was about apartheid, we were dealing with our day-to-day -day issues every day and trying to get along, you know, and still try our fun and... Yeah. And I think I think it's right to say that one of your greatest daily issues was <clears throat> your size, at least when it came to your sporting endeavours. You're constantly being stymied by being just a little bit too small. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> you bring it up. Um, but I was. I was like the, the, the shortest boy at all the way through from sub A. You know, we were still working sub and standard time. Sub A all the way from the trick. I was always the front of the the line in front of assembly you know so which i really used to my well for the book's sake i could at least like really describe what my principles looked like because i was right up there, right <laughs> up there looking at them always from the front row you, know? you really evoke that sense of what it is to be a teenager and that terrible pressure of keeping up with your peers of wanting to be accepted um, I was particularly struck by your description of how you ended up making yourself a pellet gun. I mean, just the complexity of this endeavor. You want to take us through that, that recipe? I'm still waiting to hear, you know, uh, there's a friend of mine mentioned in that, in that part of the book, Kevin, who was my dear, dear friend, but he always had everything. And like, you know, and I really tried to, you know, bind back over building, making this pellet gun. And they're like, I am like that. I can do things like that. I'm a very visual person. I'm a visual person first. I mean, as you know, you know I'm an art director by trade, not a writer. So I see things and I can make things. You know? So I made a pellet gun that kind of looked like a real pellet gun. I made the sounds. I had wires and, and string that pulled cans off as I shot them just to try and impress my friends, you know, that become friends with me again. But that's what you did. You were kids. You were quite good with your hands. I'm, 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 it's not something new, but I'm sure lots of kids who grew up during my era and before, even more so, you know, we knew how to make things and fashion things and create a, a world around us that doesn't exist, you know. So we made a plan to make up for the things we lacked in our lives. Yeah, with stunning innovation, I must say. Um, this was a period of your life characterized by often great adventure <clears throat> and drama. Um, there was a time when you literally almost died and were saved by a mutual friend, Mr. Lance Witten. Um, that, I mean, you write about this in a fairly um, facetious fashion, but really that did sound like a, a, a near-death experience, and that was uh, when you nearly perished on the train lines. Yes. Yeah, I tried, you know, throughout the book, I try my best to write the way I saw it at the time. And I'm not writing it as, as Ivan, the, the grown-up, you know, oh, this is so deep, and what happened here? And this could have happened. It's, it's a memoir. It's about the way a child that grew up during a party saw things, yeah? It's not historical. Right. 
nor is it like, you know, overly so philosophical trying to explain things. I do always hint at like, what did this mean? Because it is about a journey of discovery and identity. And I'm, you know, trying to figure out where I am in life and what I am about, but I don't go in too deeply. So I just put it down of exactly what happened because I mean, I still do think about that, that moment and I, I, I get cold shivers, you know, my life could have been ended, you know, it was gone if it wasn't for Lance Witten. You know, and as I write in the book, you know, he never chose me to join the, the cricket squad, which I was very hurt about. But this man saved my life, you know, and I uh, hope he actually gets his hands on the, on the book because I, I don't think I've really thanked him. You know, they don't do that. They don't go in like, Alonso, oh, I love you so much, my dear friend, you say my love, you're like, oh, you're whatever. Yes, <laughs> you know, I really hope he does read it. Or if he doesn't read it, he hears about it, he contacts me so we can talk about it again. So it was a big, uh, yeah, little Ivan who had been killed. Yeah, I, was, I was centimeters away from death. That's obviously an incident which sticks with you in your head. But I'm curious as to how you went about recalling with such detail and such vivid detail um, the adventures and misadventures of your teenage years? I mean, did you have a diary to fall back on or no, how did I you go? Diary. I don't even have pictures because, you know, when you get a certain age, you get to have your own um, photo album and, you know, you take all your pictures out of the family album, you stop making your, you know, curating your own album. And then, you know, as a young man, you get a bit, you know, loose-headed and you move from place to place. And I lost my album. Who loses like they Anyway, but there wasn't a diary either. And, but the writing process, everyone keeps asking me right at the beginning, like, how do you remember this? And you don't remember all those things. But when you put your fingers to the keyboard or put pen to paper, it, it, it just starts flowing back. But that's what's the fun of the writing process, which I really fell in love with. It does start, you know, it might not be real, but it starts filling in blanks. And, and, and I'm a very visual person, like I said before. And you've got to write, like I said, I didn't want to be like a diary. This happened. Mm. This happened, and that, that's going to be no fun. When it's not going to be entertaining to anyone else to read, you know, except my like you know, my family or closest friends. So I had to. I have to also kind of my responsibility as an author who puts the book out in the commercial space to entertain as well. But you know, everything is is kind of there. I do know all those stories because there are big things that happened in my life. But of course, you do fill in the gaps. You fill in the gaps. Not maybe you don't make it up. I'm not very good at making up. I'm not a you know, make up story kind of person. But, you know, it, like in advertising, I always think like you write your best ads based on real insights that you have. That's when you make right. really stories. You have to go, and that's why I always tell my creators, go and live life, go and watch movies, go and do that. Go nightclubbing, do risky things, because those are things you put in the back of your head and it comes out when you write your spots, your radio ads, your TV ads, or whatever it is. You, but you have to experience those things. So I did experience those things. And when you do write, of course, there are gaps, but you kind of fill it. And you use, you know, all those things might have not have happened at that um, corporate station at the time, but the rest of the pictures painted about all the other visits I had to corporate station. Yeah, same with the 1976. You know, I don't know if we ate cabbage breedy or whatever it was that night, but I know how the week worked. You know, certain nights we'd have cabbage, cabbage breedy and, and Irish stew. And in the month, we'd have more things like, you know, like roast beef and chicken when you can afford it. Yeah, then you have like what you call milk snails or milk slices or soup. That's like a different time of the week or different time of the month. So you use those to kind of fill the gaps, yeah, and paint the picture. But I'd like to think I'm a very, I have a very good visual memory mm. of that. I think that's very clear. 
So you say um, that mostly you are caught up in the dramas of your own community, your own family and so forth. But there are times, of course, when the political environment cannot help but impinge even on your teenage years. You know, then you have these political events at schools, you have these kind of sporadic boycotts and so forth. I mean, how did you understand those at the time? Did you feel caught up as part of a wider, bigger struggle? Was it sort of just something you went along with at the time because it was happening? I think a lot of it, we, we went along with it. You know, mm. there's nothing like peer pressure at high school. <laughs> Except you know, our peer pressure at high school wasn't about you know, whether you smoke or not. It was like, whether you're going to go and riot <laughs> or not. Right. Yeah, um, it was peer pressure. And like, you know, you know, it started when I was at six, and now you're a junior at school. And like, you hardly know. I mean, you're really terrified just being at the big school. And now all of this happens, you know. You're just kind of fitting in the, the matrix and the same lines have just stopped teasing you for being the smallest at this school and like, you know, does your mom know you year sort of thing. And now it's like, hey, are you coming to the quad for a big protest sit-in? <laughs> okay. You know, it's so many things we had to kind of like do. In, well, in, I had to do in my first day of high school when it all started, you know, and obviously it kind of followed us throughout on the, my, on my schooling years, you know, right into college. Yeah, so, yeah, it was quite a, quite a big thing. There's, you know, there's a sense in which you're writing about uh, an adolescence on the Cape Flats, and we know all too well the way in which those adolescences sometimes turn out, and you, you, you refer to this yourself. You write, again, very funnily, that you could have experimented with Mandrax, but you missed the signing up deadline, which is a hilarious concept but I mean you're making light of the fact that in reality there were obviously paths that you could have taken that would have turned your life into a very different um, place how is it do you think that you did manage to you know to keep on that track and to was it really a, a case of missing the signing up deadline for the drugs I don't know it's like you know, again maybe it's not so deep maybe I just wasn't cool enough to be invited you know, I, <laughs> I, just, like, you know, I was maybe too small it's like I'm never gonna make this you know, a mandrax smoking group look cool because <laughs> look at me. It's like, <laughs> you know, and thank goodness for that because, when, and they were really good boys, you know, boys I was really, I was good friends with and, you know, I played sport with soccer, baseball with, and, you know, just a little thing being accepted. It was usually actually all the, the taller, bigger boys as well, who just got into it and very healthy, strong, intelligent boys that just like to, you know, started, you know, because we used to smoke, we used to smoke already, which was bad, you know, behind the school, you know, behind the toilet sort of thing. And, you know, that was fine at that school. That was like nothing, you know, but it went further up, down, you know, that's where you'd smoke a bit of, you know, marijuana. And then the boys like we started doing that, then started doing mandrakes, you know, so mm. it was frightening. And like, you know, parents were called to school and like, what my boy's doing? What? And it could have been so easy. I could have been so easy involved with that because I was like, especially in so nine, I was distracted by all sorts of things. You know, I was a late bloomer. So like, I was like, oh, what's going on here? I'm like, I'm just a man now. And I got very distracted. And like, that could easily have taken a really, really bad turn. Yeah? And we don't know how you get out of it if, 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 if you do yeah, at all. I know a lot who have managed to kind of um, find salvation and uh, have good lives now and are very respected members of society, but mm. there are one or two that aren't. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
the minute you start uh, venturing, taking your first steps like a little duckling outside um, Belgravia, again, the realities of what is happening in South Africa start bearing in on you. And there's this incredible tale of this um, trip to Vintook for a wedding involving this grand deception, involving a reverend of all people. You dragged a churchman into deceit. Um, could you tell us that tale, Ivan? Can I, I tell you, I don't want to give everything away, but I mean, it was fantastic because we were so excited. And like when I start that chapter, um, mm. the, you know, my, my, my coolest uncle Arthur, because he was kind of young, and he was so young, I just called him Davy, right? I didn't call him Uncle Davy. I had cousins who were older, and I called him like Cousin Gus, okay? But Davy was just Davy, wasn't um, Anyway, and he was like this uh, very eligible bachelor, right? And I looked at him, he's the cool dude. He drove a Capri. Yeah, he had a track, eight-track music set. It was amazing. We, uh, well, I looked up to Uncle Davy, and you know, always, always, you know, all the answers said like, "When is Davy getting married?" Yeah, and, like, and finally, he found someone, but she lived in Vintook, just out of Vintook, in this, and well, on a farm, yeah, just outside Dordebus. And the news of him getting married, we were so excited, and that was happening at the same time. Princess Di was marrying Charles, and we couldn't give a crap because this wedding was a real <laughs> wedding, okay? And my sister was to be the bridesmaid to his mm. wife, Eva, who was like, you know, half colored, half German. So <laughs> I guess always exactly <laughs> an hour late. Um, and um, David said, okay, well, they're gonna take the early party up to Vintage and he's invited me along with my sister, Sharon. Okay, and he's Chabert. You know? And of course we left there with drinks and everything. Parents drink before going on trips and while they're having trips. Anyway, but the deal was that we get to um, this place in the Copper Belt, um, place now, just before um, getting to the border of then Southwest Africa. And Andy, Davy's friend, was supposed to make sure that we had petrol, okay, because we were going to arrive there on a Saturday after hours or Sunday and we wouldn't be able to get petrol, okay, mm. because um, garages used to close at one o'clock on Saturday, you know, and we'd get there and of course, you know, you knock on the door and he's first he's fast asleep after a long drive and then we find out, no, he actually didn't arrange anything, okay. And then a whole, he had to make up this whole story. He said, no, don't worry, he's going to sort out. So he went to police station to get a permit or a permission to kind of buy petrol that we could use to get to Kitman's Hall, but Kirtman's whip, I think, in, in South West Africa. And the cops needed a reason, and he said, well, you know, the, this family member, the mom, the mother had died, or she's about to die, and we have to get there, okay? And then he managed to get the petrol, and we, we got there, and Andy rushes back in the house, and we're all waiting, and he's like, just take the petrol, let's all go, we're going right now. He hardly packed anything, we all just jumped into all the cars, and we shot all, we were like, what's going on here? Then Andy, Andy explained that he had lied, you know, about you know the sick mom in um, Kitman's work. And in the meantime, the, the cops in, 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 in South Africa phoned the cops in Kitman's Kirt, work because they had a good close relationship with the let's say police. <laughs> and they went to the house to go see if he is indeed um, a sick um, old um, grandmother. And then you know we phoned to warn them that they might come and check. And the person on the phone was a Germany, you know, a pastor, and he couldn't believe that he had to make the story. First, he said, 
the woman's already dead. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's no old woman who's, <laughs> who's dying. And then they said, oh, no, well, you have to make up something. And as that, the, the, there was a knock on the door and the pastor just said, like, that's the cops. And he told his daughter to get into the bed and play sick like she's about to die. And then the cops rushed in and they came to see where's the, the, the dying old lady instead of the dying younger lady who said, like, and the father said, they said, like, oh, they thought the mom was dying. But the dad said, like, no, she's like the mother. She's leaving us. <laughs> <laughs> And the cops went away happy with that story. And the, the poor pastor had to lie because of Andy's laziness and bad planning. And yeah, we didn't get a great reception when we finally got to Liverpool because that pastor also was going to be offici officiating the wedding ceremony with Davy. And yeah, it was a crazy story. And obviously, a lot of it is written in, in Afrikaans. And, and it had to be because it's just so expressive. And the way people spoke and the turn of phrase they used, I just thought I had to keep it that way. Yeah. Absolutely. And it also exposes, of course, the absolute farcical nature of apartheid law keeping. I mean, the, the lengths that the cops would go to, to, to track you for, for what, you know, for what? Yeah, but it, it's kind of sweet, you know, uh, but there was this thing, we had respect for the law. It wasn't just this hate thing. Mm. As as you know, we, we went along with the rules. This is what it is, right? And this is how we get, yeah, but Andy took it a bit far. Yeah. And they had every right to see if the woman was indeed dying. So. <laughs> it's after leaving school or sort of in that interregnum period that you start experimenting with another of your identities that you're going to cycle through in the next few years, and that is that of a surfer, where you often find yourself to be kind of the only brown person in these very white surfer enclaves. And it struck me, yeah, that that was, you know, that's a particularly perhaps easy identity to adopt because it comes with its own subculture, right? That you can just adopt all at once, clothing, language, etc. Yeah, it is. And I did adopt it. But again, I was probably just hiding and having the shield. You know, I was thankful for being introduced to the sport by someone I was at college with, you know, Dion. And um, it was. But, but I mean, we still served where we could serve, which was Musical Corner, which was open to us by then. And, and more so actually... Cemetery, which is between Miesenberg and um, Strandfontein. But yeah, but on, on other occasion, we'd go to like um, um, Long Beach, Komiki area, and you'd get looks. You know, it wasn't quite the thing. I think Kaz Collier was the first one to really break through as a great colored surfer. But, you know, because we went into the areas because we never lived at the beach. We never lived at the seaside. So yes, we weren't, uh, we, we were strangers there, yeah. you know. And it really irritated me, especially when, you know, I, I write about them when we went to Glen Beach and it was the most beautiful day. Perfect, because Glen Beach works so nine again, but when it works, it's beautiful. And a beautiful hot day and the water was warm. And, you know, someone like saying, I mean, because they, they had the thing, you know, spray painted on the wall, you know, um, locals only. And that's a surfer thing, you know, it's not a, a color thing, but I took it very personally. And especially when some little blonde-haired twerp like told me, like, get on my way. I just... <laughs> I just couldn't hold back and I gave him some choice um, gangster <laughs> words, you know, and they never came back, you know, because because I just took it personally, you know, like locals say, what, you know, are you saying like colours aren't allowed here? No, they just mean everyone else is not allowed here. Well, that means coloured to me, okay? <laughs> so right. I took it quite personally, yeah. And those choice gangster words he was responding with are exactly the ones you're thinking of, by the way, audience. Um, <laughs> 
So you end up at Pentex studying graphic design, and yet you write in the book that advertising sounds like something white people made up. This is like a totally alien industry to you. So what is it that draws you to graphic design then, if if there's no clear you know career endpoint there? Well, it's um, we we were kind of built up, you know, like my both my sisters were teachers, and I thought obviously I'm going to be a teacher. When we saw our marks leading up to matric, then maybe it's not going to be even <laughs> maybe not it's going to be an option. Okay, and my dad wanted me to be a telecom engineer because it meant you get your own bucky and then I could come and fit in a phone at our place. Okay, but then my maths kind of fell on the wayside. So I couldn't do that either, but I was really good at art, basically on like uh, my appearance in the one newsletter, the one um, annual from my primary school days, myself and other two kids were like praised as like having artistic ability. The rest of my artistic ability, Billy was really you know, scribbling in, in textbooks and drawing mustaches on Yantam Rubik or making <laughs> a lot of, you know. People have kept those textbooks, by the way. Some of them are classics. They're <laughs> beautiful <laughs> illustrations, you know, adaptations of the, of the, of the textbook. And um, I just went into graphic design because I really looked at it and I thought like, um, Pentec, oh, this could be an option like graphic design. It only has six, it had six practical um, um, subjects and too theoretical. What did I say? I'm inherently lazy. That's the one I'm going to do. I had no idea what the vacation entailed. I didn't know what career would follow. I thought I'd be like, you know, one of the best Coca-Cola sign writers in the world. You know, how cool that going from place to place, from Babel to Paro, painting signs. Only later in the year two did I find out, well, this advertising, you know, and not just drawing posters for Coca-Cola or for the Baxter Theatre for the upcoming play. And that's what I found about advertising. And it was an amazing place to walk into. Like, wow, all these arty people, writers, creative types, never knew about it before. Never knew it. I never, for once, when I watched TV and I saw an ad, like, there are people making these things? I had no idea. I had no idea. I can only imagine what your publisher felt when dealing with an ad man who has very specific ideas of how to package and sell his own work. I uh, know. I mean, the deal was signed like six years ago. And by then, I'd already started designing the cover. You know, I just and I was told in no uncertain terms, Ivan, your job is to write the book. Maybe just maybe work on finishing it. And, and I still can resist. And when I finally did finish, the moment I wrote the last word, I went back to my laptop and started designing. I designed scores of them and different titles. The titles changed every day. We went through so many titles, and then we ended up with my big fat face on the cover. And, <laughs> but I think it's a great title. And it was both myself and, um, yeah, uh, and my publisher, you know, Jill Moody. So, yeah. You're right. When you enter the world of advertising, I mean, obviously you assimilate quite quickly in a way. I think there's a quote on the back describing you as fitting in everywhere but belonging nowhere you quite quickly lose that so-called colored accent, but you write that losing your colored accent wasn't really a case of trying to sound like a white person. It was because you were bad at having a colored accent in the first place, which is a really a very striking way of putting it. Explain to us what you mean by that. Yeah, it was, it's, it's a very strange story because, and uh, yeah, my sister as well is like, you know, we were brought up our parents who spoke mostly Afrikaans to each other you know, but converse Afrikaans, right? But somehow always encouraged us to speak English. Yeah? It was never ever a choice, but 
you know, to, we went the English route. And, stuff. and, you know, because I think for them, and probably still to this day, if you were colored, um, I think you were looked down upon. We talk about how white people saw us, because we always considered that, because that's the big world, okay? If we could break out of our, out of our grave estate, the white people looked down on us as colored people who speak Afrikaans. They would not necessarily look down on a, a white Afrikaans person speaking Afrikaans, because it's their language. But being colored or black speaking Afrikaans is sort of like, you know, giving into the Basque cup and you're just like one of the millions. Yeah, and we have to speak English because that like elevates us. Yeah, if we ever wanted to get out of here and have a decent job, we have to speak English, which I think is ridiculous right now because that does not assert what kind of person you are and how amazing you are or how talented you are. But that's where we brought up, you know, like English really could help you. And I think it did, unfairly so. The way it's so, as much as my hair that is straight, straighter than most helped me along because I'm a little bit fairer than more of my friends and, and uh, people I grew up in the area helped me. As those little things, you know, as, as wrong as it is, we had to kind of do to kind of get to a better place. We had to do that. Yeah, sadly so. When I say advertising in the 80s, I'm pretty sure everyone is thinking what I'm thinking, which is just mass debauchery. We are thinking lines and lines of cocaine. We're thinking, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. Take us into your confidence, Ivan. Was it like that? Well, not for me. I didn't go to those parties. But it was small. It was debauched, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never saw, in my first year, I never saw anyone doing cocaine. Maybe they did, okay. But I think the people then were really talented. They were. They were real artists, real creatives, and real writers. You know, there are lots of writers. When you wrote ads those days, you always had, it, 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 it was a sense of pretense at the time, but you know, they always had a novel inside them. Yeah. Mm. They were real writers. They studied English lit or journalism, like Mark Winkler. He was the first real writer I came across in advertising at uh, an agency I worked at. And I looked up, like, oh my goodness, this guy's like so smart, you know. So no, I mean, I saw amazing talent, and it was crazy because there was this big thing about advertising. There were creatives. There were creatives like fashion designing designers are creative, like musicians are creative, you know, like artists are. And you know, the big, big musicians, big artists, big factories, they do things that people think like, oh my goodness, what is that? We don't understand it, but eventually buy into it. And advertising used to be like that too. Oh, what is that? That's so cool, but we don't get it. And um, yeah, so people used to be really, really talented. And with that talent came this temperament, you know, this passion and this all or nothing thing. And like, we get completely drunk for one day and sulky the next and then brilliant the, the next, you know? So it was that, they had that sort of thing. And, and I don't think it's because of drugs. It was just about the way the industry was at the time. It was very exciting and very volatile. I mean, you sound a bit nostalgic talking about that. Do you think things have changed since then? I mean, in terms of that creativity, the nature of the people drawn to, to the agency. Yeah, it certainly has because so many more people play a part in advertising now. Everyone, as they say, it's become so democratic you know, there aren't the big sort of people doing the big ideas that like, you must try and figure out and you get this big reward. Oh, I see what they've done. Now we've just got to lay on a plate. This is what we're selling. This is what we're selling and this is how much it is. So apparently people want that, but once you give it to them, they look at it like, oh, is that all? <laughs> yeah, so it's very democratic. So it's very difficult, you know, and I hope 
we, we turn the corner because people still are hungry for creativity. You look how much people enjoy memes, right? Memes, and they are funny. And now the people who are writing those memes, I've never written a really good meme myself. And I see like, that is so creative. And the way to think and using insight, just twisted just a little bit. That's how advertising our, our fault used to be. Yeah, that's what we used to do. And that's what yeah. people enjoy. So I wish we could go back there. I think it's all moved to TikTok now, Ivan. TikTok's the real furnace of creativity. I want to talk a bit about going overseas for the first time, which you record so vividly, and particularly your sense of astonishment, which I've heard from other people as well, to see white people doing menial labor. There's something about that which seems very gratifying to South Africans of color, right? Yes, it was. And, and that's still, I think I write in there, it's one of the things that really kind of like stuck with me because, you know, you know like I say, we are our own struggles and our own prejudices. And, you know, our parents would talk about, like, you know, if you don't study, you will be a dirt man, yeah? And, like, we used to look down on coloured people coming around the houses, picking up the dirt, or the milky, who was always black, who used to come around, bring his bowl and deliver the milk. And, um, you know, we, we kind of look down at that. And when I went to Europe for the first time, my first morning, and I saw this dirt truck kind of coming around this corner at speed and these white guys jumping off, whistling, you know, throwing dirt, and like. And I'm looking at it, and the first time I actually respected that job. It's like, wow, you know, the white guy's doing it. I feel like immediately you change your mind about their vocation, and but because they're white, and you never thought of that as the guys at home like that. Yeah? And I had to like really kind of digest that and consider how you know what I'd be like coming back and look at things a little bit differently. Yeah. There's a sense that going overseas really opens up these new identity categories and possibilities for you. So you know, in Spain, you sort of become British, then you become Spanish, you get back and you have a bit of a British accent. It seems like it was really kind of an exciting time of trying on new versions of who you were once you've stepped out into the big world. Yeah, I know. I think it's, um, it's quite sad, actually. But, you know, I, I, <laughs> I feel sad, but if I look back and if I had to like, analyse what I did back then, then like, I'd probably say sad. But it wasn't like at the time, you know, you, you, it's still a youthful innocence, you know. You're just trying, you're trying to fit in. You're trying to, you know, I'm not just coloured Ivan. I'm more than that. You know? I'm not travelling Ivan. I'm not Ivan in Spain. I'm not Ivan this. You know, and I just, you know, moved and things. And, and it is quite sad because I'm, you know, adjusting um, to what I think other people expect from me to fit in. You know? But it was fun at the time. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, it became, I really became Spanish for a while. English, well, yeah, I came back, you know, just like six weeks, you know, overseas. I came back all, you know, you know what I mean? Yes, all wicked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Um, you took this strange job, strange, but providing some of the funniest fodder for the book, I think, in one of the former homelands where you work for what is abbreviated to the BBC. I mean, it's just such a strange environment. Talk us through Bob at that period in the early 90s. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to go there, right? Bob is as far from play. But, you know, because I'm such a loyal person, everyone here, I'm a loyal person. And your first job, you really stay for two years and then you jump because you can jump the salary, right? And then jump again. And I stayed my first job five years, okay, because I'm loyal. But I, you know, it was worthwhile. Like I lent my trade, I lent everything, and I, I thought it became quite good. And um, I wasn't really happy then at this stage. I wasn't really happy with who I was working, my boss, and all that stuff. Anyway, I decided to go to Bob because if I went there, because 
you know, Papula Tswana at the time, you know, they had these little things. They had the Pop Broadcasting Corporation, which I called BBC. Mm. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> really working with the BBC. <laughs> it was Pop Broadcasting Corporation. And because it was subsidized by the South African taxpayer, the salaries were quite high. You go there's an expat. Yeah, there's no real borders. So you went to the expat, so you almost like triple or quadruple your salary. And that's why I went up there. Yeah. And I mean, I had no ambition, you know, growing up in a house where my dad just like, you know, let your boss be happy with your work. So I had no ambition, like, okay, well, I'll, I'll give a bit of money, you know, because they will like my work up there. And that, that was it. You know, little did I know it was going to be such a crazy time and, and, and a crazy place for such a crazy time. And that you would indulge in such crazy pursuits like show jumping, but we'll leave that for people to explore in the book, I think. Um, I want to kind of round up before we get to these questions. Um, talk us through the point at which the book ends, or rather the point at which you decided to end the book in terms of the structuring of how much of your life you're giving us in this book. Yeah, I think, you know, lots of people ask, like, why do you end in 94? It's like supposed to be a memoir, but... You know, I didn't want to just, I didn't say I just to write a memoir. Maybe at first I did. I didn't want, uh, here's a diary of, you know, when I was born and then he you know, nearly died. I wanted something that told a story, had a certain narrative, and it's about identity. And mm. what better than to kind of get to the ultimate point and discuss identity other than 94 when people like me were first allowed to vote. You know, so that's where kind of the story starts. And that's where it ends, about identity. Am I black, am I white, am I colored, am I South African? What kind of South African am I? You know, what kind of person am I? So that was a nice, finite sort of place to kind of end and write because, you know, there was a stage when I stopped writing when I rewrote the book. It was actually, I wrote a screenplay, but I was very interested in screenplays, wrote up, read up about it, trying to find out more about screenplays. I was very excited about it. It was very hard when I did manually because I had to write in certain sizes, columns and all that thing to work out the the timing of the movie. But anyway, I wrote the whole book as a movie. Okay, now we know wow. movie, you need a beginning, you need an end, you need an angst, you need, you know, all these different things in the middle and the sad and the tragedy to get, you know, and that's actually what decided what the book's going to be because when I, done, when I was done with the screenplay, I didn't ever think anyone's going to make a movie of it, you know, Ivan. So I was like, wait, I can rewrite the book like I did the screenplay, but I write a book now. Because at least it's exciting now. It has a beginning and end and a thing and a thread and a narrative that mm. takes you through and give you some sort of reward, not just like, you know, Ivan was born and then you know, he almost died. Yeah, um, <laughs> before he wrote. You know, so that's that was the aim. Yeah, so I can't just That's a great that. tip for structuring memoir, actually. I must remember that. The obvious question is, though, you ending at 94 and there's so much of your life that you haven't covered. I mean, I was itching more, honestly, when I reached the end of this. You're going to have to write another one. I probably will write. I can never say I won't write. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it'll be a memoir because remember, 27 years of my life is exactly halfway. Okay, I'm 54 now. So the next 27 years, so the first 27 years was apartheid. Okay, but it's written with like there's still an innocence and an ooh and ah. Like, is this happening? I don't know what's happening. Explain to me something's happening. You know, there's an innocence and a great almost ending. I can vote, right? And what's happened since then? Okay, we had a bit of a rainbow nation and a, and a honeymoon period, but the rest of my 27 years is really, it's corruption, it's, it's, it's looting, it's, it's what's happening right now. Yeah, it's, it's a very sad, and, and then of course my, my professional life is just advertising. Who wants another bitter advertising book and telling stories about other agencies and other people? You know what they did and what, you know what they did. And yeah, I don't know, 
I'd like to use, obviously, my life experience, not so like, I mean, oh, last the next 27 years, these past 27 years, a complete waste of time, but maybe I can use it in a different sort of way. And until I find another narrative, a more positive thing, then I, I might consider writing it, yes. Well, I think you definitely owe us. Some questions here. I sense that this might be a kind of inside joke from Ruth Corpman, but also from Hammer. Ivy, tell the listeners about your canoeing days and walking the car at sunrise. No, that never happened. So, um, one was, <laughs> his name was Heather, and I know exactly who they are. So, it was not, <laughs> it is not meant to be heard. Right. I think this is part of the material that ended up in his um, trash file on his computer for the memoir, probably for good reason. Um, Kaif and Skulkvay, great interview, Ivan. Question, having finished the book, do you feel like you now have a clearer sense of your identity? I think a little bit. It did help. You know, it was therapeutic. It was cathartic in a way. There are still, uh, there are still lots of questions that have to be answered. It's not like you write a book and like, Okay, that's what it is. It's nothing like that. We're human beings. We still, we can see the wrong things happening. We can see the lessons we learned and we still don't do anything differently. Right? We still make those mistakes. But I think I'm a little bit better now. I think I'm better off than before I wrote the book. You mentioned, you mentioned to me, you, I mean, you said that, that, that it was therapeutic and then you mentioned to me off camera that actually you did enjoy the process of writing, which is, you know, news to professional writers like me because for whom it's often agonizing. And perhaps this is the benefit of, writing nonfiction as a kind of sideline, a hobby, not as your um, day job. But tell us a bit about your process of writing, where you used to write and how. Well, it's, it's not, like I said, it was a long process, but I'd finish a whole chapter in one night because you have to be excited about it. You have to be absolutely passionate. You have to believe. You know, there's a certain amount of arrogance almost and overconfidence. The moment you set out to write a book, it's quite arrogant, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit of because I've got something to say and I've got something right. really well. Yeah, you need that confidence to want to do it. And then you just got to enjoy it. And you, you, have to, you have to pad it. You know, these are the facts. This is what I know what happened, right? But that's not enough just to put in a book. That goes into a diary. If you want to write a book, okay? Because I read, one of the reasons I also stopped writing, I read my, my absolute idol, which is Morrissey, of the, formerly of the Smiths. And when his biography finally came out, it was so beautifully written. Every sentence, every word was so considered. I read that, I was like, oh, I, can't, I can't actually write now. I've got to start rewriting. And you've got to give the, 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 the reader that. You've got to kind of fluff out those sentences, use that turn of phrase, that original turn of phrase. You have to. You know, otherwise, it's not worth writing because there'll be no enjoyment. If you just put it down, write a history book. Yeah? But don't write a Emma or um, fiction, actually. You know? You've got to, you, the words, it's got to be worthwhile reading, I think. Mm. I hope it's been worth I think, more. I think that the enjoyment that you took in writing it really shines through and perhaps is what makes reading it such an enjoyable experience. Let's conclude with this note from Norman McFarlane, which I think is very apposite. A note rather than a question, Ivan, I'm on chapter 37 of your book and sad that it is coming to an end. Your writing is magnificent, insightful, humorous, sad, reflective, self-deprecating and exquisitely detailed. You paint a picture of your world that enables the reader to literally see that world through your eyes, not literally, Norman, but we continue. Don't stop writing, please, from your VWS fellow yellow. I don't know what that means, but I heartily endorse all the other sentiments behind it. You do write magnificently, Ivan, but you 
Right so well indeed. Thank you so much for the book. Here it is again, but he speaks so well. Memoir of a South African Identity Crisis by Ivan Johnson. I really really sincerely hope that it is not the last that we're going to see from you in South African publishing. Um I would encourage everyone to get it. I was saying to Ivan, I'm going to give it away as presents to people I think for the near future because it really is so accessible. I can think of a ton of people who will enjoy it. Um And Ivan, any final thoughts and thanks from you? Um, yes, thank you to you, Rebecca. Very kind words, and thank you to those people and Norman McFarland, who, by the way, he's a fellow firefighter like I am, volunteer firefighter. Um, yeah, but thank you to those who bought the book and like have delved into it and, and shared. You know, I still find it very strange that people I don't know uh, have bought the book, but yeah, I hope there's a little bit to share about how everyone else lives in this country and when you used to live in what they're in. So thank you. Absolutely and in times like these I think we can use that imaginative empathy more than ever. Thank you so much Ivan. Thank you.